Thank you, Glenn. Good morning. Uh, as Glenn said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. I'm excited to be with you on this Palm Sunday as we begin the climb out of the misery and sorrow of Lent and slowly make our way toward the glory of the resurrection. Uh, this morning, uh, maybe to your surprise, we're not going to be looking at the Palm Sunday narrative that's found in the four Gospels, but instead at the Old Testament prophecy that all four of the gospel writers point to, uh, the prophecy that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday over 2,000 years ago when Jesus rolled into town on a donkey's back. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah, second to last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Uh, we'll be in chapter 9, starting in verses nine, verse 9, and if you're able, I'd love to invite you to stand as we give reverence to God's Word. Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 12. This is God's Word. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true, and we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. That as we spend time here together, that we would encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. A couple of weeks ago on a road trip with my family, the movie Hook found its way into the DVD player. I'd forgotten how much I I love that movie. For those of you who hadn't seen it, it's the story of Peter Pan, who has left Neverland, grown up, had children, become a successful businessman, and forgotten who he is. And of course, you've still got the nefarious Captain Hook back in Neverland, who's longing to finish the war that he started a long time ago with Peter Pan. And so he kidnaps Peter's kids and coaxes Peter to come back to Neverland for one last battle to the death. It's a wonderful story. The part of the movie that struck me this go-round as I'm driving the car listening was the relationship between grown-up Peter and his young son, Jack. In the movie, Peter, in his old age, has become a workaholic, and his family has become an afterthought, if even that. And yet, nonetheless, what we see early in the movie is young Jack, as all kids do, is clinging to this hope that his dad is going to come around. He's going to start being 
present in his life. And there's this gut-wrenching series of events where uh, Peter gives his son Jack this, this big promise that he's going to show up at Jack's final baseball game. The game comes around, and Jack's kind of scanning the crowd, and, and he can't find his dad. And, and then this man shows up and sits, sits down next to Jack's mom and pulls out the camcorder and is like, which one's your son? And starts filming the game for the absent father. And, and what you see in the movie is in that place of deep hurt, Jack changes. Jack does what the lost boys told you not to do. He grows up. He grows up in, in that he abandons his childish visions of hope, and he chooses to accept that life is, in fact, tragic. And so you just better get used to it. And, and I think that part of the movie struck me because I can relate. I think we, we all can. We remember what it was like to live with hope. And yet as more and more of our hopes and dreams are dashed, we teach ourselves to ignore that hope that is in us. And most of us have gotten pretty good at it. Now the problem with that MO is that our text, and really Palm Sunday for that matter, is inviting us to something more. It's inviting us to, like the lost boys, never grow up. At least not like that but to live with an unwavering hope. Look again at the words of the prophet starting in verse 9. The prophet calls us, the people of God, to rejoice in something that has yet to happen, to be excited about something that is in the future. That's what hope is. To, in spite of the current situation, believe that someday, somehow, life's going to get better. I think it's worth noting here that in our, in our society where positivity and self-esteem are often heralded, the prophet is not inviting us to think happy thoughts. Uh, he's not promoting some sort of psychological mind game that will increase our dopamine and, and, and thereby give you a better quality of life. Good news for you and me is that the prophet Zechariah presents us with a concrete and convincing argument for why and how things are going to get better. Look again at verse 9. He says, Rejoice in what is not yet reality. Be full of hope because the king is coming. Don't miss this, church. The Christian hope is anchored not in what we've done or, or what we will do, but solely in the coming king and in what he has done and in what he will do. You want to hear what, according to the prophet, the king is going to do? It's pretty awesome. Look at verse 10. It says, when the king comes, he's going to bring worldwide peace. There's more. Verse 11, when this king comes, he's going to bring liberation for all those who are in bondage. It's not done yet. Verse 12, when the king comes, he's going to return to his people double of what has been taken from them. Pretty awesome. What an amazing reason for us as Christians to live with an un un unwavering hope. So then go do it, right? Go live with Hope, amen. The problem is, we've tried that before. I've tried that before. We've allowed ourselves to get our hopes up and, and only to be let down again and again. So growing up makes a lot more sense. We 
we realize that it's safer, it's, it's less painful to just lower our expectations, to, to water down any remnants of hope that might still remain inside of you and instead just roll with the punches. As an aside, have you ever thought about how depressing of a mantra that is to live by? Roll with the punches. That can't possibly be the life that God is calling us to The good news is that the prophet Zechariah is speaking to a people who, like many of us, have lost hope. The reason they've lost hope is because they've lost their grip on some fundamental truths about God and about themselves. Instead of clinging to hope, they've, they've fallen captive to doubt. And the purpose of our text, the goal of the prophet, is to speak into those doubts. There's three big questions I think that the prophet wants to answer this morning. So as we look at those questions, I want you to be curious. Curious with your own heart. Asking the question, in what ways might these doubts be hindering you from living with the hope that God is inviting us into? The first big question of the text is is pretty obvious. Is the king really coming? It's what the prophet says, but, but is he really going to come. I don't know if this is universally true for all parents, but in my house we try not to inform our children of things well in advance of when they are going to happen, uh, especially if it's something that's going to be really exciting and awesome because my, my kids, they can't handle it. Uh, they lose their minds in the waiting. I mean, imagine if I told my five-year-old daughter, hey, hey, Cora, we are going to go to Disney World in 2028. Uh, it, it is going to be awesome. We think, you know, you'll be 10 then, and we think it's going to be a really good time for you to really enjoy it. So get excited. In five years, we're going to Disney. I mean, she might be excited for a minute, and then she'd be really angry, I think. Like, why did you tell me this? Most scholars believe that the book of Genesis was written around 1400 B.C., 1400 years before the birth of Christ. And what's crazy is that God started talking about this king coming all the way back then. That there's a king that's going to come rescue and redeem and restore. And he's told, he told them 1400 years ago. What a long time to wait. The thing that God did to help his people in the waiting is that over these 1,400 years, he kept giving these hints and these clues about when this king was going to come and and what he was going to be like. Over 300 clues were given about this king. And our text is one of those clues. It's, it's, It's a clue that probably one of the last ones that is given about, written about 500 B.C., you know, you know what the people of God did with these clues every time they got them? And I'll tell you how we know in a second. They, they, they stored them up in their hearts. They held tightly to them and they waited and they waited and they waited. And it's into that context that Jesus finally shows up. This is how this Palm Sunday celebration happens as, as, as Jesus comes riding in on the donkey and, and you can imagine these people have been waiting and waiting and waiting and then, then finally he shows up and he's just as they had predicted. And what happened is the people went ballistic. One of the gospels says that when Jesus came riding in, the whole city was stirred, pandemonium. A Jewish, Jewish historian, Josephus, says there were about two and a half million people that gathered on that day. The 
reason why, because God's people, it was these clues, these detailed, specific prophecies that helped them to keep their doubts at bay. And when Jesus finally came and he fulfilled every single one of them, they did exactly what Zechariah said. They rejoiced. They celebrated. They threw a party, not because the king was coming, but because the king had finally showed up. He came. What does it have to do with you and me who are now on the other side of all this. The truth is, I think we're kind of in the same boat because our hope is also in a coming king. Unlike these original audience, their hope was in a king that was to come and was promised. Our hope is in a king that has promised to come again, to finish what he started, to fully bring all these promised blessings to us. I think it's important to note here All four of the gospel writers, they quote this text, but they only quote verse 9. They only talk about the donkey, and they omit the the really awesome stuff in 10 through 12. Why do they do that? I think the answer is the, the gospel writers, they knew that Jesus coming, it wasn't the end, but rather just the beginning, and that we, the church, are going to have to wait a little more. That we're going to have to wait to experience the fullness of the blessings that are promised here in verses 10 through 12. The not yet that Glenn just prayed for. And so my first charge for us this morning, for those of you who are struggling to believe that, that Christ is coming back, is to, like the original hearers of our text, to lean on these promises to examine the 300 plus prophecies that Christ fulfilled that validated that he is the long awaited for king, the son of God who comes to seek and save the world. And if he is that king, if he is who he says he is, then we can take him at his word when he says he's coming back and he's gonna make all things new. We sing a song here entitled Man of Your Word and one of my favorite lyrics is, it says, if you said it, we believe it. we just saying, he said, and it's done. And when I sing that song, I'm declaring that truth to my doubting heart. My God has said it, so I will believe it. Because God is a man of his word. I think another thing that I don't want us to miss in this first section, when we think about this coming king, that promise of a coming king, it was everywhere in the Old Testament. But the object of his coming is interesting. It's different here. Throughout the Old Testament, the object of the king is often and normally the nation of Israel. Jesus is coming to save the nation of Israel. But it's important to recognize that although that coming kingdom, it definitely has this corporate and cosmic ramification here in our text, it's not corporate, it's personal. Listen again to verse 9. It says, rejoice daughter of Zion. Rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. The king is coming to you. The imagery here is not of a distant but benevolent king carrying, coming to care for the masses, but rather a king who is a daddy caring personally for his daughter. The profound and glorious mystery of the gospel is that the God of the universe who created everything and holds all things together, is Psalm 139 intimately acquainted with your ways. He knows the hairs on your head. 
knows your words before you speak them. The God that knows you fully and intimately declares here in Zechariah 9 that he's coming for you. He's coming after you to redeem you, to rescue you. May that truth that King David says is too wonderful for him to fully comprehend. May it overcome and overwhelm your doubts and give you renewed hope. Which leads to our second big question. And that is, but what if it's too late? A little context here for this text is that Zechariah is writing to a group of people who have just been released from exile by the Babylonians and are finally permitted to come back home to their native land, which sounds wonderful, right? But the problem was the home they were returning to was not so great. I think it is safe to say that some of the images that many of you have likely seen on the news of of war-ravaged Ukraine is not dissimilar to what the Jews were coming home to, which is why the news of, of, of the king coming may have not quite landed on many of these people. Like, because they're like, look at our home, God. Why, why are you coming now? There's nothing left to save. So easy in, in, in the face of great devastation to believe that the ruin is just too great, that all is lost. And I have to imagine that in a room this size, there's some here today who are feeling that, feeling that the ruin is too great in your life, that if, even if the king comes, it's, it's probably too late for me. I don't know where that hopelessness comes from for you. Maybe it's from an addiction that continues to keep you in chains or from mental illness that won't let you go. Maybe it's from a faith that has been so deconstructed that it seems to have nothing left to it. Or maybe it's past hurts or wounds that make it impossible for you to believe that God is trustworthy. Maybe it's because in spite of your best efforts to build community, you feel like you're drowning in loneliness. I don't know where your hopelessness comes from, but the point that Zechariah is trying to make is that there is no ruin so great to overwhelm the hope that is in us. Makes me think about my backyard. Uh, in case you didn't know it, I, although I am from Alabama, I did not grow up on a farm. Um, and I know very little about horticulture. Um, but I decided this year I was going to kind of up my plant game in my backyard. Uh, so with much fear and trepidation, planted a bunch of bushes and shrubs and planty things. And uh, it looked awesome. I was really pleased with the product. Uh, but then winter came, and all the, the leaves fell off, and it kind of turned brown and ugly. And I kind of knew that was going to happen, but what I didn't expect is that a number of the plants didn't make it through the winter. They just straight up died. Um, and I was really bummed about that, uh, but I just assumed I'd screwed it up somehow. And so I put in the order for some new plants and uh, was getting ready to go pick those plants up. Uh, and then I noticed something strange in the soil. These little buds started popping up all over the yard. Who would have thunk it? The plants actually weren't dead. They were actually alive just underneath the soil. I'm so glad I didn't buy those plants and plant them because the yard was just fine. The truth is, oftentimes all we can see is the ruin. Earlier, Glenn prayed for Covenant Presbyterian Church, our sister church in Nashville that was devastated by the shooting. 
daughter of Chad Scruggs, the pastor, was killed. And uh, I'm not sure there's a more compelling argument that all is lost, that the ruin is, is too great. And yet, um, Covenant Presbyterian Church, like us, is right now gathering for worship. And one day, uh, not today, and, and probably not anytime soon, but I believe, I hope, that Pastor Chad is once again going to stand in that pulpit and proclaim the goodness of God. How is that possible in the face of such great ruin? It's only possible if we truly believe in the deepest part of ourselves that underneath the surface, although we cannot see it, that God is at work, that he's bringing beauty from the ashes. And I don't know what kind of ruin you are facing, but my hope is that you can trust that the king has come and that he is at work in your life and that by his grace he is redeeming and he's restoring and he promises to make all things new. It brings us to our uh, third and final question, and that is, is it, is it safe to come back home? Again, a little more context is needed the, the primary audience that Zechariah is writing to is, is, is these exiles that have come back home, but there's a number of Jews that chose to stay, that have stayed in Babylon, stayed in exile, and, and it's here in verse 12 that, that the prophet speaks to them, and, and his invitation is, is honestly strange. He says, verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. And it may not jump out at you at first, but, but the word choice here would have been shocking for the original audience. He says, he uses the word stronghold, which literally means a fortified city, a city with walls. We know from Nehemiah that, that God's people, it's 100 years before they even begin to rebuild the wall. So why would the prophet use that word stronghold when the, lit, the city literally has no walls? A couple years ago, I, I started to notice something in my own life. I, I had developed this pattern a practice of of like random randomly checking the stock market or or my bank account or both and it started to happen like more frequently and I, I found this kind of bizarre and alarming so I decided I was trying to examine what is going on here what, was there anything behind this kind of obsessive observation and what I discovered is that I would often check the stock market when I started to feel stressed or anxious about something at work. You know why I did that? I was looking for a stronghold. I was looking for something solid to grab hold of that might ease my anxiety. You, you might not realize this, but exile for these people, it wasn't all that bad. In fact, many of the exiles, they were extremely successful in exile. If you remember from the book of Daniel, the Babylonians, they actually took the best and the brightest with them and they wanted them to assimilate and be successful and make Babylon a better place. And so the exiles, they were living in a stronghold of sorts, in this fortified city that, and they were surrounded by wealth. There was so much that they could cling to and they were being invited to come back to this ruin of a city that, and start over with no wall, no business, no infrastructure. I mean, as far from a stronghold as one could get. 
But the point the prophet is making is that God's people were clinging to the wrong stronghold. They were clinging to something other than God himself. And the invitation was to cast off those other strongholds and and, and to cling to the only stronghold that can truly protect you, which is why David makes this claim in Psalm 20. He's speaking against the strongholds of the day. He says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know what happened every time I anxiously looked at the stock market? especially lately, I got more anxious. Because the stronghold, it couldn't hold me. It couldn't actually provide for me what I wanted it to give me. Brothers and sisters, what are your horses and chariots? What are the things that you are clinging to other than God, that you're putting your hope in? The promise of the scriptures is the only way that we will have true and lasting hope is to return to the stronghold that can keep you safe. Listen to the Psalms, Psalm 121. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Psalm 32, God, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The challenge for you and me is to throw off the strongholds that cannot hold us and to return home to God the only lasting stronghold. Allow his strong arms to fill you with hope. As I say that, I imagine there's likely some people here who've never before tasted the hope that is in Christ. And this idea of of God being our stronghold is, is probably very foreign to you. My hope and my prayer for you is that this Holy Week is a time for you to really examine your heart to examine what are the strongholds in your life? What are you holding on to? What are you looking to for meaning, for purpose, for hope? And just hear this invitation that God is giving you to come home. I get how you're wondering, is it safe? These promises that the prophet makes, they seem too good to be true. You don't have to answer that question right now, but I want to leave you with a quote that was written by some famous church leaders, something to ponder this week. It says, this Holy Week, open all the doors of your life and welcome Jesus with outstretched arms. Uproot the weeds of discontent. Pull out the briars of deceit from your life and offer them as palm branches. Take off the layers of pretense and the robes of self-centeredness that smother your heart and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Towards the uh, end of the movie Hook, Peter Pan remembers who he is and he finally shows up for little Jack and he boldly flies in to battle with Captain Hook to fight for his son. And, and when Jack sees his dad fighting for him, full of pride, he, cl- he, he, he declares, that's my daddy. And I don't know what happened, but, but when I was driving, all of a sudden he says that and the waterworks just started flowing. And I'm like wiping tears and trying to drive. I'm like, it just hit me. And Disney got me again. And, um, <laughs> but what was behind all those tears, I think, is this longing that all of us has for someone to love us enough to fight for us, to even die for us. That's what we really want in life, isn't it? what we're hoping for and to be a Christian is one who's anchored in that hope look at verse 12 again it says 
the prophet is calling us to return to the stronghold, you who are prisoners of hope. Isn't that beautiful? Prisoners of hope. Ones who are in bondage to something that is going to set us free. And I hope and pray that that title resonates with you in the best possible way. You are a prisoner of hope. That in spite of all this ruin that's in us and around us, that we rest in bondage to the hope that is within us because God has promised that out of the decay, he is bringing new life and he is a man of his word. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I confess the hopelessness in my own heart, how I doubt, I question whether you really came and whether you're really coming back. I find it easier just to roll with the punches and to be hopeless. But Father, your word invites us to so much more. To believe in the face of great tragedy, in the face of much ruin, that you are at work. Sometimes in ways that we can see and oftentimes in ways that we cannot. But you are at work redeeming and restoring and that you have made a bold and profound promise that you are making all things new. Father, help us to cling to that hope and believe that you are a man of your word and what you say is true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.